Thanks for, uh, good morning to all of you. Thanks for coming this morning. I, I think I'll sit here, although this table is really in my way. Um, I'm glad that you're all here. I was afraid that it would just be me and Jessica this morning because of the snow, but I mean, it wouldn't be so bad, but it would be great. But, <laughs> but uh, thanks, so thanks for being here. Let's start, with, uh, let's start with a word of prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, you continue to bless us with your gifts of word and sacrament. We pray that you would give us ears this morning to hear what your word has to say to us as you speak to our hearts which look to you for all of our comfort and strength. We pray this in your most holy name. Amen. All right. So, everybody have a hand up. So, we're just continuing with the the chapters in Bailey on the parables. Chapter 27 this morning, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. This one's in some ways... um, Nice because it's concise. It's short. It's easier to sort of wrap our heads around um, the whole story. A lot of the parables end up being a lot of details. Um, this one's nice and short. Um, so maybe to begin, we'll just read it. I, I, on the handout there, I printed out the text um, in case you don't have a copy of Bailey in front of you. This gives the, a little bit of the structure, um, although, although it's, really easy to, it's pretty easy to see the, the, the form of the, of the parable. But the thing I want uh, to consider as you, as you hear the parable and then hold on to this as, you, um, as we start the discussion, what's, what's your initial reaction when you hear the parable? Try and, um, try and preserve that. Think about what your initial reaction is and then um, we'll talk about that a little bit later after we go through some of Bailey's, Bailey's arguments and discussion. Okay? So um, would a volunteer read... Uh, Luke chapter 18, 9 through 14 there. Any takers? Yeah? All right. <laughs> okay, that's, that's just fine. We can, we can take our time. 9 through 14. Yep. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. All right, thank you. Is that, is that the NIV you're reading yeah. from there? <coughs> Super. Yes, NIV. Which is great. Uh, it, there's a, something interesting that came out in the NIV there. In, uh, in verse 11, you may have heard this. The Pharisee, it says, who prayed about, who prayed about himself, right? Which is, uh, so there's a little bit of ambiguity in the text there. It's not clear whether uh, he was standing by himself or praying concerning himself. Um, but, you know, in any case, he's, he's concerned about himself. This is, so he set himself apart, and his prayer is um, focused on him. Uh, that's, that's definitely the point that's going on there. You, you do see, though, in, in between verses 11 and 13, in the, in the, the text that you have on, in the handout, um, the bold parts there, you can see the, the contrast. So the Pharisee was standing by himself. The tax collector was standing far off. And we'll talk, we'll talk a little bit about this. Um, well, we can talk about it now. The, Bailey points out the context of, of these prayers, which is really help, a helpful thing to note. Um, 
What, is, what does he say? Where, where are these prayers taking place? Carol. Well, I just, one of the things that, that struck me about this that they went up to pray, yeah. which I've always thought of they went to pray. Right. Versus meaning they went to worship. Yeah, right. So they were going Sunday morning service. Or, or the, da- the daily service, the yeah. Service. Yeah, right. I mean, they were... Um, Right. Flip, flip the page over. Uh, just take a glance real quick. I gave you three pictures, so that I couldn't decide which one. Uh, they, they all have different things to, to communicate. So that the top one is from um, an edition of Luther's Bible that was produced in the, the 19th century. And there you see the Pharisee and the tax collector, and there's nobody else around, um, which, which is a bit misleading, right? The picture, yeah, the picture below, Sir John Everett Milli, Milius, Milli, Milius, I don't know. He's English. Um, you can see that that, that just depicts it a little bit better. There's all kinds of people around, and you can see um, the, the contrast between what the Pharisee's doing and what the tax collector's doing. Um, it's a little bit less clear with the Pharisee. Uh, Bailey makes the point that the Pharisee wants to make sure that he's not coming into contact with anybody who is ceremonially unclean. So he, I mean, he, his clothes can't even touch you know, somebody who's not a Jew, or somebody even who's a Jew but it's unclean, his clothes can't even touch them, so he has to make sure of that. He wants to preserve his, his uh, purity, and so he stands, he's not, he's not in the throng. Whereas the tax collector is off in the corner, not participating with everybody else. So I think that, that second picture really sort of depicts that well. Um, that help, and that helps to put, put it in context. Also, the other important part of the the context of the prayer is um, what Bailey argues about the uh, the service. That's right. Yeah. So there's so twice a day the uh, the priest would would sacrifice a lamb in in this in this order. This so um, in in this according to this liturgical ritual, the priest would sacrifice a lamb twice a day. Then he would go into the temple and and do the work in inside the temple, and the people would come in and and make their prayers, offer their prayers together. Um, and so, that, I mean, that's really central here as far as, as, far as, far as Bailey's concerned. It's not just a generic prayer um, that happens at any old time in the day, but it's a prayer which is specifically in the context of the service of atonement. So um, that first point that's, that I have there under, I should have numbered these points. The first point that begins with humility slash pride, question mark, or righteousness, holiness, and justification. This is a really, I mean, it's really an important remark that, that Bailey makes. We tend to think of this parable primarily as being a contrast between humility and pride, or a lesson in how we should behave. And, and it certainly does serve that purpose. It's, a, it, it's obvious that the, the tax collector is humble, the Pharisee is proud. But um, the deeper question, according to Bailey, is how are we righteous? How are we made righteous, or how are we holy? Um, and so... In the context of this, this worship service where the, the sacrifice would, was being made, God is clearly the one who's making people holy. And uh, the Pharisee and the tax collector come in, but how do, they, how do they approach that sacrifice? How do they approach the sacrifice with their prayers? Well, the Pharisee says, thank you, God, that, that you've made me the way I am. And the, the tax collector says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Right. So that, that sort of sets the stage um, you see that little quotation there. It's, it's about the folly of even trying. Um, 
Robert Farrar Capon writes about this um, writes about this parable, and he says it's not at all about humility and pride. It's about um, it's about you know even trying to be righteous on our own. It's about how as soon as we try to be justified by our works, we're, we're, we've failed. We're on the wrong track. Any questions? Does that make sense? Okay. Um, let's, ta- let's talk a little bit about the Pharisees and tax collectors. Um, Bailey points out that this isn't, this isn't the first time that Jesus has compared Pharisees and tax collectors, which is kind of helpful. It's not like Jesus is out of the blue picking on the Pharisees and in highlighting the tax collectors. This is a, a theme throughout the book of Luke. So, for instance, in Luke chapter 5, uh, I can't remember which story that is, Jesus calls Levi, Matthew, the tax collector, and then goes over to his house for dinner. And the Pharisees say, who is this guy? He's eating with tax collectors and sinners, right? So already in the beginning of Luke, it started. Um, and then in, in Luke 7, the... Uh, the tax collectors and sinners are baptized, but the Pharisees and lawyers aren't because they don't believe Jesus. And then finally, in, in Luke chapter 15, um, we have the parable of the prodigal son, but it's introduced by comparing Pharisees and tax collectors. And so you get a sense that in his parables, Jesus is often speaking about the difference between these sort of types of people, Pharisees and tax collectors. And in the prodigal son, we might imagine that the, the son who goes away, the prodigal son, is the tax collector, and the son who stays home is the Pharisee, right? So this, is a, this, is, this isn't new information. It's, uh, Jesus has been talking about this the whole time. Okay. So that, that's a whole bunch of stuff by way of introduction. Um, let's see what other notes I have here. Um, Bailey spends quite a bit of time talking about Isaiah 66, um, which is an Old Testament uh, pericope that, that is... Uh, highlighting the importance of sacrifices done in faith. And that sacrifices which are done not in faith or out of, out of a sense of self-righteousness aren't acceptable to God. Um, I, didn't, I didn't find that quite as interesting as the rest of the material. So if you want to talk about that, we, we, we can or if you have questions about that, but maybe we'll just move on to the second half of the page. Sound good? Okay, so first question for you then is, um, what was your initial reaction to the parable? How do you feel about these guys, the Pharisee and the tax collector? Yes. Okay, good, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to be more like the tax collector, um, but if, I'm, yeah, if we're honest about ourselves, we're, we're more like the Pharisees. Good. So, it's, I mean, we have a sense of what we should do. Anything else? What other reactions do you have? How do you feel about the, the, the character of these fellows? Do you, I mean, do you like the tax collector better than the Pharisee? No. no? Okay. <laughs> Why not, Carol? They were just people irritated. Okay. All right. <laughs> Good. Okay. That, 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 makes, that makes sense. It's sensible um, that you, that you would, uh, that, uh, we're kind of we're kind of disgusted by the Pharisee, and if you especially if you look at the picture on the back, the the top one. Okay. Good. Yeah. So I mean, in some sense, and I think I I disagree with Bailey a little bit. Um, Bailey says 
he comments on the, the Pharisee's prayer, and he says, it doesn't fit in the category of these three kinds of prayers that people make. What were those categories? They were, um, yeah, confession of sin, thanks. Yeah, confession of sin, thanks for bounty received, petitions for oneself and for one others. Well, I mean, if you feel particularly blessed, it is good and right and salutary to say thank you to God for that, right? So, I mean, in some sense, the prayer of the Pharisee does fit in that category. If he's, con- if he's convinced that what he's received from God is a blessing, and that blessing is um, his good behavior, then his prayer is a good, is a, is a good prayer. Right, yeah. Right, yeah, so he's measuring his, his deeds against somebody else's as opposed to measuring them against God, right? Nancy. Yeah. Right, yeah, so I mean, it, it, if, if, we, if we're honest about the situation, we have to be a little bit conflicted. The Pharisees, are, I mean, he's a, he's a pretty good guy. Um, and the tax collector is, is scum. There's, there's no way around it. And in, in that sense, um, I wanted to reflect a little bit on, on how, how our impressions of these fellows ma- match with the, the, paint, the, the drawings here. So if you look at that top drawing, the, the wood cutting, um, the, the, for one thing, the, the tax collector is in this really humble attire to begin with. Right? It, yeah, it doesn't quite fit. Um, and, so, and, and also, look at how the Pharisee is. Uh, first of all, I mean, he fasts twice a week. Do you think he's good? I mean, is he going to be... <laughs> so, portly. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I was trying to think of a nice way to put it. <laughs> that's right. It, so, uh, we, in, in some sense, I mean, I think it's really interesting to note that um, we associate humility and pride with some sort of external, visible thing, um, which isn't necessarily true. I would suggest that we might even switch these two characters, these two figures in the drawing, and then, and then ask ourselves about the parable. So the guy who looks like he's really well-to-do is in the back praying by himself, asking God, him to, be merc- God to be merciful to him. And the fellow who's in humble attire um, and looks like he's a, a righteous fellow is the guy who's approaching God, asking, thanking God. So keep that in mind for a second. Um, the uh, Capon ha- has, a, has a way with these parables um, of putting them into really vivid, oh, sometimes crude language, but it's really helpful to, to sort of shatter our presuppositions. So I give you this paragraph here um, to give you, a, a, to, to sort of test that idea. Let me read it to you and see, um, see if this helps with getting, wrapping our minds around how these people actually, actually work. Forget the prejudice that Jesus' frequently stinging remarks about Pharisees have formed in your minds. Give this particular Pharisee all the credit you can. He is, after all, a good man. To begin with, he's not a crook, he's not a time server, not a womanizer. He takes nothing he hasn't honestly earned. He gives everyone he knows fair and full measure, and he is faithful to his wife, patient with his children, and steadfast for his friends. He is not at all like this publican, this tax farmer, who was the worst kind of crook, a legal one, a big operator, a mafia-style enforcer, working for the Roman government on a nifty franchise that lets him collect from his fellow Jews, mind you, 
from the people whom the Romans might have trouble finding, but whose whereabouts he knows and whose language he speaks, all the money he can bleed out of them, provided only he pays the authorities an agreed flat fee. He has been living for years on the cream he has skimmed off their milk money. He is a fat cat who drives a stretch limo, drinks nothing but Shivas Regal, and never shows up at a party without at least two $500 a night call girls in tow. I mean, he paints a really stark picture, right? Um, what, what do you think about that? Does, that? does that change your impression of the parable at all? How, how so? Uh, they could, they were, could be. Some were, some were. The particularly helpful one. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, as, as Caben points out, the, the tax collectors that were helpful for the Romans in collecting taxes from the Jews would have been fellow Jews, right? Because they, they knew their way among, among the Jews. Yeah. What did he do after he left the synagogue? Good. Was this the first time he's prayed this? Does he keep praying this and then go back to his old ways? Or is he sharing? Hold on to that thought. That, that's a really good question to ask. Um, that's right. Yep, there's, I mean, there's that, what's that scene from The Godfather where there's that baptism going on at the same time as the people? Are, yeah. Yeah. Holly. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, Zacchaeus goes and says, I'm going to give everybody. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Right, absolutely. Yeah. It's a matter of the heart okay. and, and the spirit. And you know, there's something to be learned from both sides. There's good and bad on both sides. So, you know, how you um, sieve that out mm-hmm. and run with it in the future. Yeah. And we don't know about what these guys did when they went home. Good. Yeah. Mary. I think Capon does make a point, and I don't, I'm not sure that it's this parable, but maybe in another one, about that very thing about whether or not people go back to their old life or whether or not it really changes them. And he makes the point that it doesn't really matter. Right. Because what is, if the confession is real, then the confession is real. And you don't get to judge them because Mm -hmm. you may not see a very distinct change in their behavior right away, but that the Lord is still working and you don't get to you know, make a judgment on them. Right. You know, you can only take the confession. Yeah. And, you know, oftentimes we can see other people's bad behavior and say, well, that person is this way or that way, but you don't really know their heart and you don't know that they're not aware of it and they aren't, don't feel horrible about it. We all have those mm-hmm. sins in us that we just, we know they're horrible, but we just keep doing them. Yep. And that this isn't really any different. It's just that you kind of look at this and it's easy to because we're not like this. That's right. We don't do this particular sin. And it's so. par- it's particularly visible and it's I mean it's a public offense too in some sense like it's it, it hurts everybody's conscience. It's not even just Jews and Christians, right? Yeah. I think the Garrison Keillor's story and it's been in the um, margin notes. Yeah. What's Larry his? Larry the Larry the fat boy or something? Yeah, or yeah. Like something like that. Up, yeah, right. He would you know, stumble up to the altar in yeah. tears, confessing oh, yeah. so often that even the congregation was embarrassed for him. To That's right. Do that one more time. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And you know, there's an interesting um, there's an interesting thing to 
think about in terms of what our responsibility or our role as, other, as, as fellow Christians is towards each other. Um, you know, the, the office of, of the keys, of forgiving sins and loosing sins, that's given to, to pastors. And so um, it's, not in, it's not in our right as fellow Christians. It's not, we don't, we're not authorized to say, hey, you haven't really changed your ways, so you're, you're, not, gonna, you're not forgiven, right? It's, it's, not, it's not our job. Um, we're not given that to judge as, as fellow Christians. Um, there is somebody who judges, and that's God himself, but we leave that up to him, right? Yeah. Um, and, and, and so, that, I mean, we see that relationship between the Pharisee and the tax collector here, um, especially. They, they shouldn't, or the Pharisee shouldn't even be thinking about the tax collector. He shouldn't, shouldn't even be considering him. He should only be considering his relationship to God. Okay, now, the thing is, you, in the last five minutes, said about everything that I had hoped to say. So, let's see, um, I'm, and it, which is good. <laughs> I was thinking I would surprise you or shock you or something, but no. You jumped to my conclusions, which is good. Um, so, that now, let's see. I want to talk a little bit about... Um, or ask the question, what does it reveal about us if, um, if the tax collector... So suppose the tax collector goes home and doesn't change anything. But then comes back again next week and says the very same prayer. Um, and God forgives him. He goes home justified again. Uh, how does our reaction to that... What does that reveal about us? I'm being really vague here. I think that it's like, it's kind of like, man, I do all this right stuff. Yeah. And this guy gets off totally scot-free, even though he's a big jerk. You know, yeah. it makes you feel kind of like, oh. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it, and it, so, I mean, it reveals what we, what we think about, about the law and about gospel and about our own righteousness. So it is, there's always this little bit of us which, which thinks that because we're, Doing some, we're doing some good things that our righteousness is, is there. Go ahead, Rachel. I was just going to say, and not only does he get off scot-free, but it also, you know, Jesus also very clearly says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. So then you're like, oh, geez, well, the Pharisee, yeah. who does try most of the time hard, is actually going to be you know, punished, whereas right. the guy, you know, it doesn't, doesn't seem fair. Really. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. seem fair, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Surely. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. Right. I think there's a great comfort, though. I, I, I think of the Pharisee as, like you said, the, in the parable of the, uh, the prodigal son. Mm-hmm. It, we find ourselves very much in the the righteous brother's position. Yep. And I don't think God tells the brother, or the father tells the brother, you know, I don't love you anymore. Yeah. He very much says, I love you and you've always been with me. All that I have is yours. Right. That's what he says. So yeah. I don't think he's telling the Pharisee, I don't love you. Mm-hmm. He's just kind of saying, you don't need to be, you know, you don't need to do what you're doing. Right. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a good point. There, I mean, so a question about, uh, you know, uh, whether the Pharisees, Pharisees being condemned or not is it would be a good question. He's 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 in need of humility. He's being humbled. Um, 
which which uh, I can't remember who, who said it. This the Penny, I think you said it's not it's, it's not an either or. There's something to be learned from both. There's something to be gained from both both positions, right? So, um, a, a, leading a better life like the Pharisee is something that we do as Christians, but being humble is something that we do like like the tax collector. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Therefore, you still sin. Right. So even though you're trying hard to do, you're still sinning. Right. Yeah. Nancy. I mean, no, what bothers me is, you know, you could admire the the tax collector for his humility, but, you know, to what extent do we not judge? If you were a poor farmer and he was coming by and extorting from you the money, you know, money to feed your family and you know, maybe buy a new cloak to replace one of the holes in it or something, you would not like him. Right. I mean, you couldn't help but feel he was definitely um, a sinner or somebody working against the what God wanted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, there's, there's definitely a real challenge in two ways in this parable. The first is to think about our own righteousness appropriately, but also to, th- to reflect on the way we view others in terms of their righteousness. Um, where do they get their righteousness from? Which, so um, here's, the, here's the second exercise on the second to last point there. The first exercise was what happens when the tax collector goes home and stays the same? What, how do you feel about him or what's your reaction when he goes home, gets better, and then comes to the temple? What do you think about him now? Yeah. Good job. Yeah. Okay, why? We're looking at him and saying, Mm-hmm. He's do, he's doing a better job. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's we're, a, we're measuring his actions probably against our own. Sure. Or the the, the community's norm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, I mean, that's one of the most to me. That's one of the most striking things about the parable is that, in some sense, there's no way out. There's no way getting past our own, our own, um, our own self, sense of self-righteousness. Um, we, we're stuck because either way, um, and we can, we can know it in our heads, we can know that um, if he goes home and stays the same, he, still, he can still be justified before God because Christ died for his sins. We can also know that if he goes home and gets better, it's not saving him to get better. But we, there's, uh, there's no way around that twinge that says, you know, hey, hey, good job, guy. You're you're a little bit you're a little bit better off with God, or you're, you know, um, there's no way there's no way around that. Which points out the exactly what Capen says in that little quote. It's about the folly of even even trying. Um, we we run into a dead end here in this world um, because we're we're stuck in we're stuck in our sinful bodies in our sinful flesh, right? Um, which can be kind of it's a kind of a pessimistic outlook. So what's the what's the solution? What's the answer? I don't recall too great is what it sounds like. Sure. But do whatever you want and you're going to be forgiven because you earned it. Mm-hmm. Not the same place as the Right. Yeah. That's true. Yep. Yep. So, I mean, it wouldn't be, it, like, I, once again, it's not, a, it's not an either or. It's not be like the tax collector or be like the Pharisee. It's not, it's, it's not one of those. Yeah. 
Sorry, I didn't. I. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Sure. It's got the halo. Yep. That's that perfect. That's that's exactly the, the right place to land. I think. Um, just a little bit about the icon. If, if you, it, go, it moves from left to right, so they enter the temple, the tax collector in a lower position than the Pharisee, and then they leave the temple, the tax collector exalted. Right. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> um, it, so, so the, I mean, so that, and then yeah, of course, the tax collector has the has the halo there, and the the Pharisee, the Pharisee is humbled as he leaves the temple. He didn't come in with the halo, right? Yep. Yeah, and and the the note about the curtain, I I didn't notice that, but that's that's a very good point. I mean, the the curtain is open for the tax collector there, who's who's um, who would otherwise be you know rejected from the temple because he's unclean. What color is the curtain? The curtain is red. He's green, which means something. Nope, same same clothes. Yeah. The the colors I, I don't know much about iconography, but the colors do mean something, and green means something, and the Pharisee is blue. But um, okay, yeah. Okay. Okay. So um, one interesting question to ask about um, this parable, the third to last point on my page there: Where is Christ in the parable? You, Holly, you said you said it really well. It's not in the in the icon. It's not about the the tax collector at all. It's about Christ. So, where is Christ? Where, where do we see Christ in this parable? We often look um, we look in parables to find ourselves and to find Christ. Maybe the better question to start with is the one above it. Where are where are we in the parable? Well, I guess we've we've pretty well answered this. We see how we we have a little bit of the Pharisee and the tax collector in us, right? So, where's Christ? And here's a trick or key to... Right. Oftentimes in parables, Jesus is off stage. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. He's the lamb that, that's... Yep, exactly. All right, right. And, um, I mean, that, it's not explicit in the parable at all, but... If this were a Jewish drama off stage... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that I mean that's that's uh, I think that that's the that fits well with the point that it's not about the it's not about the tax collector anymore either. Um, it's it's the they both come to the temple because of the atonement that's being made there. The Pharisee doesn't get it. He doesn't understand. He's he's not um, not looking to the atonement, but the tax collector is, and that's that's where where the righteousness is found. Okay. Okay. Good. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, and I, I was asking Pastor Nelson about this yesterday, and he, um, he suggested, even that we see Jesus in in both characters. So, Jesus is the one who is outwardly righteous, as well as as humble. So he he is the best of both worlds, if to put it in strange terms. Um, he he does it all, right? So he and and his glory, this is, um, this is one of the, the paradoxes about God. God's glory and his, his exaltation is, is manifest in his humility. So 
Jesus is lifted up on the cross. He's exalted on the cross where he is at his most humble. Um, where he's mo- yeah, b- most humiliated. Um, and and, and it, it flies in the face of everything we think about in this world. All of the, all of the ideas we have about, about glory and pride and humility. Any other questions there or comments? Yeah. Right. It, I, yeah, there, I, it's a it's a good point. And he so this is related to Isaiah sixty six. And there's something there is something interesting to note about Isaiah sixty six. Um, if you look at if you let's open it up real quick. If you have a Bible. And I think this is where he's drawing that point from, although it, it does seem a little, to come out of the blue. But it's, it's valuable. Um, Isaiah 66, especially verse 3. Um, he says, He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations. The interesting thing to note about this is that God has at various times commanded people to make these sacrifices. Um, and so what is it that makes the sacrifices unacceptable to God? It's not the sacrifices themselves. It's the, the, the posture of the people who's make, who are making the sacrifices. It's the... That's the the best example. We, ha- we I mean we have this really sort of cryptic um, story about Cain and Abel uh, in in Genesis chapter four. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Sounds great. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. Um, it, it, so it has it has very little to do with the, the sacrifice, um, it, or the, the character or quality of the sacrifice. It has everything to do with the heart of the one who's making the sacrifice. So then, now how does this relate to um, word and sacrament? Well, if you draw the connection then today to the the, the sacraments that we receive, um, it's the very same the very same notion that's at play. It's not the uh, it's not the the sacrament itself, not the not the elements themselves, which are doing anything. Um, and Luther Luther hits this harder than anything else. Faith has to trust in these words given and shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Faith believes these promises. Um, that's why we have to talk about infants having faith because they the water's not going to do it. Um, the water's not going to do anything on their own, but it's the word working through the water which is received by faith, believed by faith. So that, I think, is, uh, which is remarkably a, Luth- a Lutheran thing for yeah. Bailey to be saying. So I was confused why it's doing it in Latin. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I thought maybe it was because it's not a particular sacrifice. Right, yeah. Yep, and in, in the psalm, Psalm 51, a, a con- uh, sacrifices of God are a contrite heart and uh, yeah. or a, a broken spirit I will not despise, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. If I were being really cynical, I would say it's because the parable is so short and he didn't have much else to say about it. But 
I'm not being that cynical. So, um, I, I did wonder, uh, though, about, um, about making a connection to the Lord's Supper. Um, we, often, it, it, we often wonder about the question of worthiness when we approach the Lord's Supper, and, we, and rightly so. In 1 Corinthians, um, we have this warning, this severe warning um, that Paul gives. Uh, let's see here. Whoever, let's see, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven. Whoever therefore eats this bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Um, and this is always the, this is the question that Luther asks in the catechisms. How do, what makes you worthy to receive the Lord's Supper? Um, and what's the answer? You have to be Lutheran. That's right. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. yeah. So nothing or uh, what? Christ. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. Believing that Christ is there for you. Um, alternately, believing that you are unworthy. Right. This is not the the sacrament is not given for those who don't need it. It's given for those who are miserable, those who are have no hope in themselves. Um, and so in, in some sense, the, I, think, I, I was reading Dr. Just's commentary on it, and he, on this parable, and he talks about how there's, in, in the, the book of Luke, um, there's a theme that runs through of, of table fellowship and, and meals, um, which relates you know, directly to the Lord's Supper. So Jesus interacts with people in this way. He eats with tax collectors and sinners. And finally, on the road, you know, on the road to Emmaus, then he sits down and breaks bread with, with these disciples. Um, interestingly, Dr. Just says this parable doesn't have any, anything about a meal in it. Um, but we, I think that it has an interesting application to our view of, of the Lord's Supper, or our understanding of our worthiness when we approach the Lord's Supper. When we go to the Lord's Supper, how do we go? Uh, do we go as a tax collector or, or as a Pharisee? Um, and it, it gives us cause to examine ourselves and see you know, whether we're whether we are approaching the table because we think we are in good standing with the church or because we've, you know, we've, we, uh, we, didn't, we didn't do anything too grievous during the week, you know, and so forth. I always took worthiness as whether it was a symbol or whether you really believed it was the bread and, I mean, the, the body and blood. Sure. That's what I took it to. And, and there's, there's, there is a sense of that in, in Paul um, when he talks about discerning the body and blood of Christ, right? So whoever does not discern the body and blood of Christ is, is guilty against it as well. That's right. Yeah. 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 Right, right. There's a there's a story where I just read I can't remember where I read it Flannery O'Connor that it was I think it's then a margin comment right so she's eating with some friends who are uh, intellectuals and they eventually end up talking about the sacrament and uh, they're asking the question you know whether whether it's a symbol or whether it's you know Christ's body and blood and she says something like um, if it's just a symbol to hell with it or something like that <laughs> which is I mean which is it's a it's and the the um, the, the uh, really interesting thing about I'm digressing now because I'm teaching men's Bible study in the Lord's Supper, so I've been thinking about these things. Um, the church is the church that argues 
the, the, the theologians that argue for a symbolic understanding of the Lord's Supper have never been able to agree about what that symbol, what it, what it symbolizes. And so in, in some, some real, very real sense, it's, it's useless. There's no, there's no meaning to it if it's just a symbol. Nobody knows what, what it's a symbol for, right? Or there's no agreement on it. Um, anyway, that's neither here nor there. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yep. But, but it sounds like what I'm doing is... Not... Uh, go ahead, Katie. I would say that, but that's the same thing, because then that's your broken spirit. Yeah. If your broken spirit is so broken you can't even feel it, then that's exactly why you should be doing right. it anyway, right? Yep, and, and Luther... I mean, Luther is brilliant on this. He says, um, he says if, you, if you feel... He says everybody should, everybody should go as often as they can. Um, and if you feel like you shouldn't go, if you feel like you don't need it, or you, you feel sort of cold or listless about it, he says, you know, put your hand in your chest and see whether you have flesh. And if you have flesh, then see what Scripture says about it. Your flesh produces only works that are evil. And, and, and then you know. You know that you're, you're only ever doing evil things and that you need it. And then he also goes on and says, um, look around at the world, and he says, Try just for a little while to act as like you're, act like you're Christian and see if the world doesn't hate you for it. In which case, you need all the help you can get. And then he says, uh, the devil's after you too. If only you knew how many arrows and uh, darts the devil has aimed at you, you would go. As, you, well, you would go mad, and you would go as often as often as you can because you you can't survive the attack on your own, right? So. Um, it's precisely in those cases where we don't feel the need for it, or, or when we recognize that we don't feel the need for it, that we ought to go. Yeah. Right. Yep. And there, there's a, yeah, there's. I think I'm thinking of a, a margin, another margin comment that's along those lines, say, saying the creed. Um, you know. Yeah, I don't. I, yeah, I don't believe. It, well, and then he says, "It's not your creed. It's not yours. It's it's it belongs to Christ. It's his it's his faith that he gives you. It's um it's his supper. So and he wants you to have it um, as you are, right? Okay. All right, Rachel. This sort of opens up another issue that we may not want to get into, but <laughs> the, but the, I also then wonder about the kids mm-hmm. yeah. because. Um, you know, I feel like, you know, my kids, you know, just getting out the door and getting to church on time and getting in there, you know, I find myself, you know, wishing that I had time or would have thought to, like, say something. Like, okay, sure. now remember that this is something that you should be thinking about and it's something that you need to be taking seriously. But then I don't think about that until we're up at the communion rail and then it just seems sort of like, oh, okay, you know, okay, mm-hmm. Rather than, you know, humbling themselves and, so it's going so through the motions even when they're not really necessarily getting it, you know. Yeah. I mean it, it's a it's a really interesting question and I, the way I, I think about it is um, it's it's difficult for us as adults to, to do it without going through the motions. Um, and we we suspect that it's it's more difficult for children, but I think that it's probably it's much easier. Life is much simpler when you're a child, um, you have far less baggage 
to think about. You have far less arrogance sort of built up over time, right? Far less pride that you've, been, that you've sort of grown into. Um, yeah, there's more of an innocence uh, and more of, a, uh, more of a sense of receiving something that's, that's being given to you. Um, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Sometimes I say that. No, it's. I mean, it's. It, that's. It's a. It's a good question. And the, I mean, the. The. But it's not. It's not about. It's not about counting sins. Um, and it, sometimes, and for kids, it's not even necessarily about knowing the word sin, or knowing that sin is what we're talking about. But it's. It's that Jesus loves me, and He's giving Himself for me because He wants to take care of me. It's. It's good for me. Um, and that's that's where it's really helpful to be a child, because it, it, the world isn't quite as dark yet. Yeah. Um, exactly. They're like Jesus is giving me. Jesus is feeding me. You know, it's that's right. Wait, I, I want to be careful. The babysitters. I, I I went out too long last time. I think so. Um, but the, wait. Let me just finish with this. Um, Luther, I'm glad this segued into the Lord's Supper because I was hoping it would. Um, Luther concludes on the large catechism this way. He says, Therefore, let every father of the family know that it is his duty by the injunction and command of God to teach these things to his children, to teach them about the Lord's Supper, um, that, that Christ is giving his body and blood. Or have them learn what they ought to know. For since they are baptized and received into the Christian church, they should also enjoy this communion of the sacrament in order that they may serve us and be useful to us. For they must all indeed help us to believe, love, and pray, and fight against the devil. And there's something in that, um, that it, the example of children receiving the Lord's Supper is, is very useful for us as adults. They receive it in such innocence and, um, and they're in, in sort of a, uh, a humility because of their age already, um, that, which is helpful for us. We don't have to bring... We don't have to... We don't, they teach us that we don't have to, tr- to bring anything of our own to the altar, to the rail. They, they don't, they're not doing that. Yeah. I th- that's, that's, okay, let's leave it at that. Um, let's conclude with the Lord's Prayer. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.